We're in the middle of a series here through the book of Acts. This is part number 20, but we're in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to turn there and kind of put your finger in there, you can do that. Cities tend to have a particular ethos. Cities kind of have a way of carrying a certain or embodying a certain theme with them. When you think of some of the great cities of America, you could think of the story or the ethos that they embody. Think, for example, about New York. When you say New York City, you tend to think of people who came over from different parts of the world, particularly from Europe, and you think about them fleeing different situations, and you think about them saying, you know, we're going to make a better life. You think about the Jewish tailor who opens up a small shop above, uh, you know, on the second floor and works hard and then makes a business out of it. Or you think about uh, Eastern European immigrants and there's story after story after story. I imagine if, you, if you've ever been to Ellis Island or, or um, some of the places that, that document it, you would, um, you would be amazed by the, by the sense of, wow, look what people have done. They came here with opportunity in their hearts and they worked hard and, and this is what they were able to sort of achieve. And so if we were to say, what does New York kind of represent? New York kind of represents the, the dream, the, the American dream maybe, maybe the immigrant, immigrant's dream. And then you think about, and sometimes that carries even over today when people say, you know what, I don't know about this. I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to chase this dream. I have a few friends who did that and they lived there for a couple years in, in Greenwich Village and it was awesome. And then they said, yeah, okay, we, now we're going to start a family. We need to move out of the city. And, um, and that happens. And then you, you think of maybe another city like, like Los Angeles. And LA kind of represents this, this, this place where you can chase your dreams of celebrity stardom or whatever. And so you, there's stories maybe of, the, of the, the ordinary guy or the girl next door who kind of goes to L.A. and, you know, works hard and gets the big break. And next thing you know, five years down the road, they're winning the Oscar. And, and cities have a way of representing or embodying dreams or an ethos or maybe even a certain kind of myth. A Corinth was a city very much like that. Corinth is the site of Paul's next stop. Last week he was in Athens. This week he's in Corinth. And Corinth was the strip of land that was between two seas. And because of that, it was a perfect place for trade. Now, I grew up in Malaysia and Singapore, and Singapore is kind of the tip of Malaysia. It really was part of Malaysia until, I think, 63, and then we kind of let them be on their own. And they're, to this day, very, a very thriving sort of commerce, a place of commerce because of its location between trade routes between India and China. And Malaysia benefited from a lot of that over the centuries. But Corinth was that kind of a city. It was in between trade routes, and so it was known for its commerce. It was, it was a, a city known for its wealth and its trade, but it was also known for its immorality. In fact, there was a slang back in, in the first century where Corinthiasmai is to, was a slang for to commit adultery. Um, maybe un- not unlike the bumper stickers you see where it says, don't Californicate Colorado, you know? I mean, there's, there's sort of, we, we turn city names into slangs or proverbs for something, and that, they had that in the first day. In fact, uh, uh, Cor- um, Corinthiastes was a slang for a harlot. And so it had this reputation not only of being a city of trade, but a city of immorality. And when you think about going to this place you imagine the kind of ethos or the kind of uh, maybe dominant belief that permeated that city as Paul goes into it. We find ourselves here in the 21st century America and there is a deeply uh, embedded um, American ideology and it's this idea of the self-made individual. 
this idea that because of the rise of, of what we've done and what people have come over with, and if we just got a shot, we could work hard and we could make this happen. And, and to a large degree, that's true. But maybe the anthem of sort of a generation ago or, or a couple generations ago was Sinatra's famous refrain, I did it my way. We are the self-made individual and we love those stories because, man, it's mesmerizing. The story of a person who has a dream and chases the dream and then it comes true and you say, you see, this is what it's all about. You can do it. You can have it. If you're just given a shot, you can make it happen. The self-made individual. The trouble is most of us are going to hit a point or have already hit a point where you run into a wall. And when you run into that wall where it doesn't seem like it's going to work or you feel like you're growing weary or you feel like you're running out of strength, the question then arises, okay, so am I going to make it or not? Am I going to persevere and push through? Will I be? Do I have what it takes to be the next dot, dot, dot? Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, whoever, whoever, whoever. And honestly, most of the time for us, we hit this wall where we run out of gas, we run out of strength, and we say, okay, I'm kind of faced with one of two conclusions here. Either I can say, you know what, I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'm not special. I guess those guys, those women, those people, whatever, those are like heroic individuals. They're, They're special. I'm this and... And so, I'll just make my peace with that. Or, we say, all right, come on, you give yourself kind of your pep talk, you know, all right, come on now, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I am better than this, and you've got all the, you know, the self-help mantras, whatever, you say, you know, I can do this, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I'm good looking, people like me, you know, whatever it is, and you sort of say, I can push through this, this, this little wall, this emotional wall, this barrier, this, this, this feeling of, Weakness on the brink of collapse. No, I I can push through and do this. What I want us to explore today is how God strengthens us. And as we take this journey to discover that, you're going to see that this is really the end of the hero myth, which is why we've called our talk this morning the end of the hero myth. Because the gospel has something to say about our popular modern Western notion that the individual is self-made, that there is this superhuman, the overman, the powerful individual that can conquer and power and cut down everybody in his way if you just have the strength. The trouble is this myth gets Christianized quite a bit. Because we imagine that the heroes in the scripture are men and women who were super people, supermen or superwomen. And we imagine that if we look through the pages of scripture, aren't we going to find men and women who never got weary? Aren't we going to find men and women who never messed up? Aren't we going to find people that never failed or got discouraged? Thank God the answer is no. That truly, when you look through the pages of Scripture, you'll see story after story after story where we we, we face or we meet a so-called hero figure that all of a sudden needs others. This is that moment in our story of Acts. 
As I've said before, this is kind of like season two. The book of Acts, imagine it like a TV show with season one and season two. Season one was Peter, our strong hero. Season two is Paul. And so far, Paul's been quite the guy. I mean, this is Paul where in Athens he could debate with the philosophers. In the synagogues, he could give them Jewish, a Jewish history lesson. I mean, this dude is impressive. And yet in Acts 18, we see Paul almost in need of some help. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. He had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul visited with them. And because they practiced the same trade, he stayed and worked with them. This is interesting. He's found someone who does what he does. And hey, we both work with leather. They all worked with leather. Every Sabbath he interacted with people in the synagogue, trying to convince both Jews and Greeks. This was Paul's sort of MO. Go into a new city, find the synagogue, or find the gathering of Jews, and then work with them, preach them, and see if they would respond. And inevitably, in every city, there would be some level of resistance, and then Paul would say, okay, fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. But now things are reaching a boiling point. Once Silas Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself fully to the word, what we know about this scene is that these guys must have brought him a gift, and we hear about this in one of Paul's letters, so he can kind of put aside his leather trade or tent-making trade for a bit and devote himself fully to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And when they opposed and slandered him, gee, <laughs> this again ought to make us remember that we're in good company here. Preaching the word of Christ, even as we saw last week, no matter how good you are at contextualizing the gospel, there's still going to be people who mock it and make fun of it. Here's Paul being slandered. And he shook the dust off from his clothes in protest and said to them, you are responsible for your own fates. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. I mean, this is like the ultimate, I'm taking my ball and going home, you know. <laughs> Only with Paul, it's like, fine, I'm taking the gospel and I'm going to the Gentiles. Enough with you stubborn people. This is really, this is Luke's kind of strongest statement so far of Paul's reaction to the Jewish rejection. Paul's determined to say, look, I, I went to the Jew first. He writes this in Romans, I went to the Jew first because this is, it's their Messiah, it's Israel's Messiah. But, but time after time they've rejected it and now Paul's saying, okay, enough. Now I'm turning full on to the Gentiles. But there's something else that we kind of know about Paul's ministry in Corinth, and we know this from the way he writes in his letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It's kind of interesting to overlay what Acts tells us about his visits with some of the letters Paul writes. And if you've read 2 Corinthians, and that might be a good extracurricular reading this week, if you've read 2 Corinthians, you'll, you'll see that Paul seems to have a little chip on his shoulder. He kind of feels the need to defend himself, and what a lot of commentators say is, look, the Corinthians valued flashy philosophers. They valued people who were impressive, and Paul just wasn't that impressive physically, and he wasn't that impressive in the way that he spoke, and he didn't sort of have this, this, this support. Uh, traveling teachers in, in the first century depended on a wealthy patron. Remember we talked about Lydia and how she was able to, to, to give him a base of operations in, in, in that city, Philippi, I think. But here we are in Corinth, and, and Paul's coming in, and they're sort of like, who are you? You, you don't, you're not very impressive. They mock him. They slander him. And so, and so in 2 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly writes and says, look, 
What did you want? did, Did you want me to come with wise and persuasive words? No, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then towards the end of his letter, he says, okay, fine. This is foolishness. I can't believe I'm going to do this. But but you want to know my credentials? Fine, here's my credentials. And then he rattles off this list, but not of glorious experiences, but of what? Persecutions. He says, I was beaten. I did this. And then he says, okay, you want to know about visions? Well, I knew a man who had, was caught up. And he starts talking about all this stuff. And it's really fun to kind of read it alternatively in the message translation. Because he, Paul's kind of saying, he's like, look, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm going to brag like this. But it's foolishness. But okay, you want to know my resume? Here. And he starts to say all of this stuff. And you wonder if his ministry in Corinth just felt like slogging through stuff. If every conversation was like, gosh, you, you, don't, you don't believe me? I mean, my goodness, you, you, you don't trust me. I mean, what, what do I got to do? What do I have to do here? And then there's this phrase he uses in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, look, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. As if Paul's saying, you know what? If you're expecting me to be impressive, you're out of luck. It ain't going to happen. I'm not that impressive, but Jesus is. But the gospel is. And the Corinthians being this place of commerce and of immorality were people that we kind of pieced together. They were people that were obsessed or fixated on the flashy and the fantastic. And Paul's saying, you know, God has something to say about that. God wants to confront that. But imagine for a minute what, how Paul may have felt. Imagine for a moment how Paul might have felt discouraged, feeling like the Jews have given him their strongest rejection, how Paul sort of had it up to here, how he's feeling like every conversation's a battle. You ever had a week like that? (laughs) Where every staff meeting was this, where every conversation, where every email was someone wanting to, you know, oppose you, every, or, 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 you know, moms are staying, every conversation with your child was, no, no, I have a two-year-old, I know those conversations, I was home a couple nights this week, Holly, for the first time, she had a, a little Bible study with some moms and then a baby shower for a friend. And it was two nights in a row where she said, honey, you think I could leave you home with all four? There's only one right answer to this, men. <laughs> and I said, yes, you know, give my dear wife a, a break. And I, I tell you, I, I don't know how you women do this. I mean, this is remarkable. But I, I, I know a new level of exhaustion of being drained, of feeling like you're slogging through and everybody's saying, no, no, I'm a, I'm a. no, I mean, my kids, they all, they have sin natures. This may surprise you, but they do have a sin nature. But so here's Paul and he's on empty. I mean, you, we, we kind of deduce this. And God sends him something special. God sends him Aquila and Priscilla. The first thing I want to say to us this morning, I want to say three things about how God strengthens us. And the first is this, that God strengthens us through friends. God strengthens us through friends. I've said a lot over the last several months about the church being a place of diversity and all that, and I believe in that. But do you know we also need some people who are just in common with us? People who, like Aquila and Priscilla, are of the same trade as Paul. Here's Paul finally meeting, oh, you're leather workers, and you believe in Jesus. Can I stay with you? <laughs> Like, I mean, it's almost like friends, people in my common trade. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about friendship love as opposed to 
romantic love, and he says lovers and romantic love is where people face each other face to face, and they're always looking at each other, and they're and and they're they're speaking to one another, and then they're fascinated by one another. But but friendship love is a little bit more like shoulder to shoulder, and it's it's the kind of love that grows as you do something common together. Anybody been on a hike with a number of friends? I'm looking at Matt and and and. Uh, Brian, you guys just did a couple hikes. Didn't you do like Pikes Peak or something like that a couple weekends ago? Maybe, maybe not. I know some of you, anyone, hikers, Colorado people? That's right, you do it. And there's, there's something about when you go on this trail or you go on the hike, I've been told, there's something about it that when you get to the top, you feel this sense of camaraderie and you feel like, we did this together. The kind of friendship love, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the, the, the love that blossoms because you've been standing shoulder to shoulder facing a common task, the kind of strength, strength and friendship that happens in a squadron of, 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 of uh, people who are serving overseas. You say, you know, we've been through this together. This is forging our... There's something about friendship love that, that does grow out of commonness. C.S. Lewis and Augustine, St. Augustine, and Lewis no doubt is drawing from Augustine, but they talk about how friendship love has this very peculiar phenomenon. Normally when you divide something, when something is shared, there's less for everyone, right? If I were to have a pizza and I said, okay, I'll share it with all of you, you're not going to get much. But joy among friends is different. Joy when it is shared is not divided but multiplied. And Augustine says this is when a group of people come together and they have the shared joy in God, the joy multiplies. And then Lewis picks up on that and he describes it. He says, look, among friends, when you lose one friend, you haven't just lost them, you've lost how they multiplied the joy of the whole group of friends. There's something about friendship love that God uses to breathe strength into our hearts, to know, hey, you too? You're going through this too? Wait, you've experienced that? Yeah, yeah me. I know, I know what it's like to work in the corporate world. No, I know what it's like to stay home. No, I know what it's like to be in school. I've had that professor. I've had, you know, and all these different things. And you say, okay, really? Let's talk about this. And all of a sudden, strength begins to fill your life. Stanley Hauerwas, the phenomenal professor of ethics at Duke for, for a number of years, said, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and he was commenting on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Bonhoeffer really highlighted that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to train us in dependency. Think about that. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, many things can be said about the whole point of the Sermon I, I know that. But this is one interesting angle on it, isn't it? That it's to train us in dependency. We've often talked about how even the Lord's Prayer that we pray doesn't have a singular pronoun, first-person pronoun in it. There's no I's and me's or my's. It's our and us. Because we're reminded that following Jesus is not self-help. Following Jesus is not do-it-yourself. Following Jesus is to join, to follow Jesus is to join a company of others. But the sec- there is more to how God brings us strength. Follow the story with me in verse 7. He left the synagogue and, and went next door to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile God worshiper, Crispus the synagogue leader, 
and his entire household came to believe in the Lord. And many Corinthians believed and were baptized after listening to Paul. And one night, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Don't be afraid. Continue speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. And no one who attacks you will harm you, for I have many people in this city. This is reminiscent. This is why our gospel reading for this morning was from John 10, where Jesus says, I have many other sheep who are not yet in the fold. Look, when we find ourselves along the way of Jesus, we can count on his presence to be with us. And so Paul stayed there for 18 months teaching God's word among them. God strengthens us through his presence. God strength does strengthen us through his actual presence with us. The phrase that you could underline if you were an underlining type or highlight with your device or whatever is the phrase where, where the Lord says to Paul, I am with you. It makes me think of Psalm 23. which says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. We sang it. We sang a phrase of that this morning. Something powerful about knowing that God strengthens us with His very presence. I want to make a couple comments on this because some of you may come from different church backgrounds and this may be a, a, a tricky idea to sort of wrap your head around because you may kind of think, okay, so, so what, what does it mean to say God strengthens us? Should I expect a vision in the night like Paul? Should I expect a, a, an audible voice? I've been around different parts of different times in my life, been around Christians who have made too much of the voice of God, where the voice of God needed to be the thing that they had at every turn. And I just want to say this from a pastoral standpoint. I think, I think there is a way when we make the voice of God specifically about guidance, I think that uh, um, can be a dangerous place. Because we're always looking, well, God, are you telling me to take this job or this job? Or God, are you telling me to do this or that? And all of us know that those are tricky things. So I thought God said to do this. Well, I thought God said to do this. And, we're, and so you need more than that. You need others to, to be able to weigh in. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but what I want to say is I think the presence of God or the God who speaks or the God who is with us the focal point of that is not so much in guidance. God, give me guidance. Be my GPS for life, as much as it is intimacy and relationship, assurance, that the voice of God, the presence of God, most, many, many, many times, in fact, when you read through this summer, I had the chance to read through some of the writings of, of, of the medieval mystics, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, uh, Susan Saylor, where you gave me that book, and I, I was able to read through that this summer, and different ones who talked about the sense of God's presence. It was not so much about God eliminating the risk out of your decisions, if we're honest, don't we sometimes want God's voice because we want all the risk out of life? I just want God to speak so that there won't be any risk. You know what? Following Jesus is going to involve some risk. Life involves some risk. You're going to make some leaps. But the voice of Christ or the presence of Christ with us is really about the assurance of His being with us. More than it is, take this turn and not that turn, and if you take this turn, there won't be any problems. I mean, that's, that's kind of misapplying it to me. My wife, Holly, went through a, something like this in college where she was applying for a student leadership program and she thought you know, she was going to do the chaplain thing and then she found out that she made the RA program and decided to switch gears. And so this lady who was in leadership 
confronted her. We were just talking about this last night. And to my, you know, then 20-year-old Holly, who was not my wife, but girlfriend, unless we were broken up. I can't remember. We did break up a few times. But, but I, I've pushed those memories behind. But, but uh, here, here, she goes to this lady and says, you know, I think I'm going to join the RA program instead of the chaplain program. And the lady says to her, look, did the Holy Spirit tell you to be a chaplain or not? I mean, I, she's like, I just felt like the Lord was wanting me to take a role of leadership. Well, did he call you to be a chaplain or an RA? I don't I mean, I, you know. And that's the kind of stuff where we do damage in the church. Where you turn the voice of God into the, uh, a Ouija board or a magic eight ball or something. It's like, well, which one did God say? Chipotle or Qdoba? <laughs> One's got better queso, the other has better meats. I mean, I don't know. It's just... Instead of saying, you know what, so, so when we do that, then sometimes people say, well, you know what, I don't want to believe any of this stuff. Christians are crazy. God doesn't speak. God's not with us. And then you swing all the way to the other side and you miss out on the power of God actually speaking and God actually comforting and God actually leading looking at Michael and Stephanie who gave up their careers to be, to, to, to be missionaries, just got back from Turkey. Amazing. God is leading you guys and your family. He does speak. And one of the things that I never want us to, to get away from, you know, we, we, we believe in, we, we put in these different parts of our service to have structure and to teach us to pray and we have these things that we say and all that stuff. But we do believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, right? He has spoken through the prophets and guess what? He is with us even now. So when we gather to worship, this may be new for some of you, but when we gather to worship, there is a sense in which God makes His presence known to us through the Holy Spirit. It, may, it's, it is mystical. It's hard to explain. It's not rational. But there's a long century after century after century tradition of people saying, you know what, there's a way of knowing God that is beyond my mind. That's beyond words oftentimes. And it sometimes just makes me sit like this. And some of you may say, you know what, when we sing together, that's when I sense it. For my wife, she says when she's out in nature, that's when it's like, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, that's when it really kind of, she feels assured of God's presence. God does communicate His presence in different ways. Man, that could be a whole series, but let's move on. Acts 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a certain Jew named Apollos arrived in Ephesus. This is kind of now toward the end of the chapter. And there's this guy who's this very gifted teacher. He says he was a native of Alexandria and was well-educated and effective in his use of the Scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke as one stirred up by the Spirit. So this is like, hmm, preacher. And he taught accurately the things about Jesus. So, okay, he had some knowledge here even though he was aware only of the baptism John proclaimed and practiced. And he began speaking with confidence in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they received him into their circle of friends. What a phrase. They received him into their circle of friends. And explained to him God's way more accurately. 
And when he wanted to travel to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the, the, the disciples so that they would open their homes to him. And once he arrived, he was of great help to those who had come to believe through grace. And he would vigorously defeat Jewish arguments in public debates using the scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Here's a guy who had tremendous gift and a tremendous calling on his life, but he lacked a few things. He was inaccurate in a couple of things. He only, or not inaccurate, he only, he was limited. He only kind of had come to this point. And Priscilla and Aquila sit down with him and say, hey, look, 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 we want to teach you a bit more. We want to guide you a bit more. And he receives it. And then he says, well, I think God's calling me over here. And they say, okay, we've got friends over there. And it begins, they begin to open doors for him. Listen, folks, God strengthens us through friends. God strengthens us through his presence. But God also strengthens us through community. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the difference between friends and community? I think friends, in this specific sense, is people who are in common places of life with us, same stage of life, single people, single people, married people, that is commonness, and you feel a certain camaraderie with that. But community is a larger idea. Community is where there are people in this gathering that are not in your stage of life, that are farther down the road than you are. Listen, it's because Priscilla and Aquila were farther down the road in their faith than Apollos that they were able to correct him and instruct him, right? You don't know what you don't know. You need people to be able to speak into this. So what I want to encourage you is look look around for a moment. This is the reason we have the lights bright and all this stuff. We want you to see each other, know each other, warts and all. Look around, and, and, and it's great to have friends that you have commonness with, But it's great to be connected to a larger community that involves people that are at different stages of life than you. That are that you can go to and say, Hey, tell tell me how am I thinking correctly about marriage or about you know dating or or, tell me what I mean one of the worst things for for single people is to listen to dating advice from your single friends. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's true. If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. I mean, I mean, I think about when Holly and I were dating and she had some single friends who were like, I don't know, this is how it's supposed to feel and this is what it's supposed to be like. How do you know? <laughs> and all they're doing is reinforcing ideals that for all we know have been absorbed from culture and from TV shows and from movies. And from, I thought, isn't this supposed to be this way? And isn't it supposed to feel this? Are we supposed to? You know what? Here's an idea. Find someone who's 10 to 20 years farther down the road than you are, who is in a healthy, strong place that represents where you'd like to be, and go buy them coffee. Talk to them. Say, can I, can I sit down with you? I just want to talk to you, but I admire you. I mean, I don't know much about you, but I kind of admire you. What would you say to me as a 25-year-old? I'm not 25, but hypothetically. <laughs> what would you say to me? So, well, here's what I would say to you. Right? Young parents raising kids can be difficult. And it's great to have other moms and other dads that you can listen to. That's wonderful. But you ought to seek out some others who've raised their kids or are raising their kids well and say, tell, can you tell me a little bit about this? Like, what am I, what am I missing here? And they'll say, you know, you might want to think about how much TV. That's, you might want to think about, oh, here's an idea. Here's some car games. Here's some stories, here's some 
books on CD. Here's, you know, we've, we've learned so much, and we're not perfect by any means. We struggle. But we are, we are so thankful to have others who are farther down the road than we are to be able to speak into it and to say, you know what, here's what you need to remember. And this is what every, you know, every, all the parents whose kids are grown always say this, it goes so fast. And no matter how many times I hear that, <laughs> I am still tempted to rush bedtime along just a little bit more. Okay, come on, guys. And then there are those evenings where I stop and I say, you know what? We're not going to read a book. I'm going to make up a story. I started doing that last week and the girls just thought it was the greatest thing ever. They're like, Dad, you, you should make a movie out of this. I'm like, yeah, you're easy to please, you know. And you remember, look, if I just go a little bit slower here, this is going to be better. If I take my time a little bit more here, this is going to be fun. Or for you folks that are wondering, should I, how do I know if this is the one and the Lord hasn't spoken to me in a night vision dream, you know? So we'll talk to someone who's married. So what, 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 am I, what does this mean? What does it mean to sort of, oh, you, you mean marriage is more of this covenant, grace-empowered commitment than it is the feeling of, you know, whatever? <laughs> oh. So what am I looking for here? Ask those questions. Apollos was a gifted young man with a calling of God on his life. But if Aquila and Priscilla had not welcomed him in their circle of friends, would he have been the great blessing that he later was to the body of Christ? Probably not. So it works both ways. For all of us who are at younger stages of life, seek out those who are ahead of us and say, hey, would you welcome me into your circle of friends so that I can know and learn? And the reverse is true. For many of you, I think, that, I think the tendency is when you, you know, and I can understand this. Look, you know, you're, you're almost at the end of the finish line of raising your kids, the quote-unquote finish line. And, and although that line keeps moving, yeah, yeah, John, here's Jossie laughing out loud. Uh, which is wonderful. That, that finish line is very elusive, isn't it? But, but there, I, I, I imagine the feeling is like, okay, well, we're done. Let's just have our friends and we'll have our little, you know, holy huddles and would you be willing to find other young people? And maybe today, it's something as simple as, hey, you guys want to join us for lunch? Oh, okay. And all of a sudden, you've invited them in. Does that make sense? See, church is not where the pastor disciples everybody. Church is where we become a community of the people of God that look at others and say, that is a tremendous call. Let's invite them into our circle and let's see what God will do with them. What if we brought this guy or this guy, and you bring them in, and all of a sudden, they get to see a healthy family for the first time, or they get to have these, and, and by bringing them in, and listen, it's, sometimes it's simpler than you think. Well, I can't do like a mentorship group, and I just don't have the time. Look, one of the simplest things is just invite them into what you're already doing. Come along with me. I mean, isn't that sort of the Jesus discipleship thing? I'm going this way. Want to come? And, and in a similar way, that's what I'm trying to do as a pastor. I'm saying, look, I'm leading this downtown thing. Want to lead with me? Who wants to join the setup team? We need more people. Who wants to serve in the children's ministry? We need more people. Who wants? Let's do this together. Right? If I believe the lie that I am the hero, then I will never make room for you to grow. And if you believe you're the, the lie that you're the hero, you'll never let God help you grow. The end of the hero myth means that none of us can do it on our 
own. Amen? But here's the catch. You could take this sermon and you could say, okay, I need friends, I need community, I need people. Who, who am I going to find? And all of a sudden you're like, finding people that you just need to take from. It's not a great way to keep friends. And this is where the gospel transforms everything. Because God doesn't just say, okay, yeah, go find friends, you need others, good luck, God bless you. And then there's a whole bunch of needy people looking for who they can get stuff from, right? The gospel says your life has been redefined in Jesus Christ. You are now new. Jesus defines your identity. And so you're no longer just a married person or a single person or a mom or dad. You're not just, you are first of all defined in Jesus. You've been welcomed into it. And so as that identity forms you, you get filled up. And then all of a sudden you can approach relationships, not just saying, who can I take from? But you're saying, who could I encourage? Who could I bless? And you recognize that friendships and relationships are not the source. This cup could be any coffee cup, really. But uh, oftentimes there's a security that happens when you're on your way somewhere and you've got the coffee cup in your hands. You know that no matter what happens today, you can make it because you got your pumpkin spice latte (laughs) or your salted caramel mocha or your tall awake tea latte with four pumps classic syrup made with 2%. It's my drink. Just in case you're wondering, write that down. You, you just, there's something about, oh, I've, I've, I've got it. But what if someday someone says, hey, wait, Glenn. There's nothing in there. So, well, no, 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 this is my, this is my strength. This is my strength. If I get this lid back on. This is my strength. There's nothing in there. This, this, I just need more friends. I just need community Don't confuse the container with the source. Don't confuse the container with the source. The cup is nothing without the coffee. The friendships are meaningless if there's not Christ and the Spirit in them, right? You can have all kinds of friends that you have commonness in, but it ain't the right kind of commonness, if you know what I'm saying. And all you're getting is nothing. Like, why am I not filled up? I just spent like three hours hanging out. (laughs) This is not the source. See, without the gospel, we are tempted to turn containers into the source. Without the gospel, we are tempted to turn to friendships and others and and community and make that the end all. So that's what I need. No, my friends, what we need is Jesus to redefine us, to remake us. But then, 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 when you find friends and when you find community, it's this paradox. Because you go into it looking to give and you end up receiving. You go into it seeking to encourage them and you walk away feeling encouraged. Like, wow, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses it... 
that stuff's really true. <laughs> that all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, if I, this is why Paul writes both to the Colossians and then to the Ephesians. He says, let the word of, to the Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Ephesians, he says, be filled continually with the Holy Spirit, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When you and I say, you know what, my rock center is Jesus. I'm going to take some time today, it's maybe 15 minutes, but I'm going to meditate on the scripture, I'm going to read the scripture, I'm going to listen to podcasts, whatever it is, I'm going to fill up, I'm going to sit and let the Spirit renew me, whether that's a walk through the park, or whether that's a time in prayer, or corporate, and then, and then as you start to see others, you approach friendships differently. You approach community differently. You begin to say, well... I'm feeling weak, but let me try to serve. And <gasps> lo and behold, they serve you. And lo and behold, God breeds strength to you through others. Not because they are the source, but because they are the container through which God works. Amen?